Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Exodus and the fourth chapter as we continue in our series, Journey to Freedom in the book of Exodus. And today, our struggle to live by faith. Anybody here struggle to live by faith? All right. I'm not alone. I think we can all understand uh, the difference between, Lord, I don't know where my next meal will come from, but I'm trusting in you. Versus, Lord, the washing machine is acting up and I hate to deplete my savings. There's a faith in both of them, I guess, but perhaps uh, by measurement, a little bit different. By every metric out there, we live in the most, if not the richest, one of the richest countries on earth, and yet we are dying by the year. Spiritually speaking, Europe is dead. We just had a team return from Europe. It's been dead. They're very materialistic. They're very affluent. But then again, who needs faith when you've got it all, right? Moses had it all. And then even gave it all up. If you've been with us in the story as a younger version, gave it all up for the sake of freeing his people. But he did it in the flesh. He did it in his own strength. That didn't work real well. And he took off for Midian. From, so the 40-year-old would then spend the next 40 years in the wilderness to earn his BSD degree, the backside of the desert degree, which is what some of you are probably earning right now. Many a Christian have gone through the backside of the, of the desert. And what do you know? God was still working in his life. The Irish theologian Alec Motier probably put it best when he said maybe the most important lesson for Moses is that God still loved and cared for him in the midst of his mistakes and failures. And aren't you glad? Because he still loves and cares for you in the midst of your mistakes and failures. Amen? The backside of the desert is a hard place to be, but it's a necessary place for us to be in our struggle to comprehend what it means to live by faith. Indeed, the Bible tells us the just shall live by, by faith. It is there for Moses after 40 years that God calls him. I mean, now he's 80 years old when he gets called. He sees the burning bush. He has this dialogue with God. He's 80 years old. And it's not like Moses says, Jesus, about time I've been waiting for you to come and commission me. In fact, if you've been with us, you know that he just starts eliciting all of these excuses. And we've listed five of them. And for your refreshment and reminder, here they are. Moses' five excuses and God's five responses to those excuses at the burning bush. The first one, if you'll recall, is when God commissions Moses to go down into Egypt, he says, who am I? In other words, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in nobody here. I'm out, of, I'm out of commitment, out of commission for a whole generation. And God reminds Moses, it's not who you are, but it's whose you are, right? And that's the same for you and I. Don't get hung up on your abilities or your inabilities, but God's greatness, God's presence, God's power. Those are all the things that God had promised Moses when he would go down there. The second question was, who are you? I mean, if I go down there, I mean, I'm going to go to Egypt. Who, who am I going to say is sending me? And that's when God responds with the epic reply, what? I am has sent you. The eternal, 
ever, all, ever, ever, uh, eternal God, all-sufficient God, self-sustaining God will go with you. Then Moses says, he, gets, he sort of ratchets up the excuses. He says, look, if I go there, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. To which God replies, I'll make you believable. <laughs> That's the whole illustration with the stick. Pick up that staff, the, what Brad spoke on last week. And God would use Moses mightily with what little he had. We'll come back to that. What's in your hand? That's going to be a question today. Moses then gets to the crux of the matter. He says, I, I'm not eloquent. I, I don't have the, the ability to speak. I have, I'm slow of speech. And God basically says, I made you the way you are, and I'll tell you what I want you to say. And again, we'll circle back to this this morning. And finally, really, you get to the very heart of the matter. In Moses' heart of hearts, he didn't even want to go. In fact, he said, I don't want to. You send somebody else. Remember that? To which God says, I'll cover your weaknesses. And that's true of you too. There are many times we, we just don't want to do it because we just don't think we have it within us to do it. And I got news for you. You don't have it within you to do it. But God has his own means by which he covers for our weaknesses. So with that in mind, it's time to get back to Egypt and to secure the family of God there in Egypt before he actually confronts Pharaoh. And that's what's going on here. But there is some growing pains in Moses' life, he's still struggling in his faith walk, just like many of you are. And so with a bit of a running commentary, beginning in verse 19, here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So the former Pharaoh, his stepfather, and all his posse that he undoubtedly sent out to get Moses when he ran, they're all gone, they're all dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, very reminiscent of what we see many years later with Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Now those miracles God was saying, uh, that I showed you earlier, you know, with the staff turning into the, the serpent and, and into the hand and all these things. That, that wasn't just to wow you. It was intended to, basically, that was a practice session for you wowing them. But I want you to pay special attention to these next words. He says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. How would you like that for a commission? Hey, I want you to go down and set my people free. But by the way, the Pharaoh there, he's going to harden his heart to what you had to say. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Isaiah, when God calls Isaiah. Many of you remember the story, Isaiah 6. He sees this vision of God. God says, who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, okay, I'm going to send you, but I got word. they're not going to listen to you. How would you like that for a commission? But the truth of the matter is, almost everyone's spiritual commission comes with some set, setback, and this is no different. Now, verse 22 says, now God's still talking to Moses. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Or some of your Bibles say, worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So later on, when the law comes into effect, you'll, you'll you remember eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In this case, it's 
son for son. Give back my son or I'll take yours. And if you've read ahead in the account, you know what happens here, don't you? I want you to notice something here. Just, it's really easy to miss. But twice, God says to Moses in verse 21, notice what he says, he says, but I will harden his heart. And then in verse 22, then you will say to Pharaoh. I want you to notice that God, only God can predict the future. But he doesn't just predict the future. He, he, gives, he gives a detailed account of what is about to happen. Do you notice that? And here's what I want you to know as we, get, as we continue in this text. God never panics about your future or any of its details like you do. And here's something else. You will never be in a place where God hasn't already been. You'll never be in a place where God hasn't already been. When I was studying this, I, was, I, I remember being on a hunting trip out in Colorado a number of years ago, and a friend of mine went deep into the, up into the mountain. We came to a stream so that we wouldn't get lost. We followed the stream. He went south. I went up the mountain and uh, hunting for elk. I probably went a half a mile up there in just the middle of nowhere. I found a little meadow. I went in there. It's about three or four inches of snow. I'm holding my gun. I'm waiting for an elk. It just, it's beautiful. It's serene. It's just, it's just, and I'm looking out here. I'm thinking, you know, I, I might be the only person who has ever stood here, ever. And I looked down. There was an old Pepsi can at my feet. I kid you not. <laughs> not only was there somebody else there before me, God was there before me. And he's been everywhere you have ever been or everywhere you will ever go before you will ever get there. And he'll meet you there once you do get there. Remember that. Now, what happens next is really strange. But it illustrates Moses' struggle in his faith. His, and, and part of that struggle is his own personal disobedience. One guy in our cell group told me a couple weeks ago, hey, I've been reading ahead of, you, of these messages, and I read this, what we're about to read, and he goes, what the heck is this all about? And I went, ah, that's a really good question. <laughs> and here it is, verse 24. At a lodging place, now remember, they're on their way to Egypt now. God has commissioned him and his wife and family on, on a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. That is, he spared his life. It was then that Zipporah said, a bridegroom of blood, that's what you are, because of the circumcision. Now, when I was reading this, I thought of a time when I was called to a home. This, this, this actually happened. I went into a home one day, and the husband was over here, the wife was over here, opposite side of the house, and in between, plates and glass busted everywhere. And I walk into the house to that, and I'm thinking, I have no idea what happened, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't good. And that's what's sort of going on here. I mean, we're just sort of out of, the, out of the blue. They're on their way to Egypt, and God confronts Moses to kill him. What is going on here? And we're not given a whole lot of 
context here. So we have to use some sanctified imagination, so bear with me. Desperate times require desperate measures. By the way, every Bible expositor agrees with this next statement. By not circumcising his son, Moses was in violation of the Abrahamic covenant, which was sealed by God with Abraham four to 500 years earlier. Remember, God meets Abraham, calls him out, then has him circumcise his son on the eighth day, and then, then commands everybody who would come after him to do the same as a covenant. By the way, the word covenant means to cut. And uh, so as a covenant between the Jew and their God. By the way, what was the penalty for not doing this? Here's the penalty. Look at this. Well, I'll just read it to you if it doesn't pop up here. There it is. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. That means be killed from his people. He has broken my covenant. That was the penalty for not circumcising your sons as a Jewish man following God. Why would God make circumcision the sign between him and his people? That's a, that's a legitimate question we ought to just delve into for a moment. Some would say, well, there are health issues because it's a proven fact that Jewish women have the lowest percentage of cervical cancer for all time to the present hour. True statement. But the reasons for the circumcision as the sign between God's people and God is much, much deeper than that. The male part is that which procreates, right? What do men procreate? This is not a trick question. They procreate sinners, right? God, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God does not create sinners. And yet we rightly say God made us. Even the text in chapter 4, verse 11, God says, who made the deaf, the mute, and all of that? Didn't I? So we rightly say God made us, but how does he do it? He does it by using man, sinful man, watch it, who can only procreate sinful men. Hence, the cutting away required in circumcision was symbolic. It was meant to symbolize the cutting away of sin and that which separates man from his God. That's what it symbolized. In fact, it has always been that way, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The prophets and the apostle Paul both show us that there was a spiritual ramification to what was going on here. Here's how Paul put it in Romans chapter two. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. See that there? By the Spirit, not by the letter. So, what is going on here? They're, go on, they're on their way to Egypt. Moses, who is a Jew, has not circumcised his son. And he's about to reach the people of God and lead the people of God, but hasn't acted as a man of God. And so God confronts him. What's going on here? Let me take a stab at it. 
After a failed attempt to identify with the Jews 40 years earlier, Moses bugs out and flees to Midian and marries Zipporah. Zipporah is not a Jew. She's a Midianite. And they start a family. Now imagine this conversation going on. What do we have, dear? We have a son. Oh, wonderful. Um, I'm a Jew, and uh, so this is what we do to our sons. Just imagine this. What? You're not doing that to my boy. Just imagine that going back and forth. Moses is in Midian. He's not even with Jewish people. He's the only Jew. He's producing Jews. What is happening here? I think that Moses made his appeal to Zipporah, and she refused. This sounds stupid, silly. What are you talking about? You can worship your God without the whole circumcision thing. I think, here's what I think. I think Moses thought it wasn't worth the fight with his wife. Not realizing the fight he'd set up with his God. That's what I think. Is it possible, only after God struck Moses, because he met him, threatened to kill him, is it possible that only after God had struck Moses with some malady, that Zipporah, knowing what she needed to do, sir, out of disgust, circumcised the son, as she did, and saved Moses. By the way, it was always women that kept saving Moses. You notice that? One up for you gals here. One thing is for sure, they both learned that day God means business with his covenants. Amen? And in his struggle to live by faith, we're going to see a much less hesitant Moses from here on in than the one we see in this chapter here. He's growing, but it's a struggle to grow. Amen? And I want to talk just to you men for a moment. You men that are fathers and leading your families, lead your families, making your wife the spiritual head simply by your refusal to lead or your passive resistance to do so, is a bad thing. Either way, what consequences are you possibly drumming up for your children and their future? I think the future is very, very dark. It's bright as ever as it pertains to Christ returning and all that we have to look forward to, amen? But I think in the immediate the future is as dark as it, it could, I think. I think our kids are facing something we have never faced before. I believe it with all my heart. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of Hezekiah, the great king of Judah. He was a great king. I don't know why people don't name their kids Hezekiah, except they had a terrible ending. He did something so boneheaded at the end that God says, because of what you did, this is what's going to happen to the future of Israel. And do you know how Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 re responded to that? Because God said, although it'll go good in your day, later it's going to get dark. Hezekiah goes, well, at least it'll be good in my day. I think that's the way some, some of you dads act. Dads, your children are facing darker days to come than this world has ever known. And just because you might not does not mean it does not mean that you shouldn't be preparing your kids to face them. So take the lead in your families. Moses, 
at this point, meets up with his brother-in-law just outside of the place of the Israelites, and really, actually closer to the mountain of God. He would eventually get into Egypt. Meets with Aaron, who is then empowered to speak God's words and do God's miracles. And together, together, they would confront Pharaoh. Here's, look at the last verse in the passage says, and the people believe. So Moses and Aaron come together. They do the miracles. They, Aaron and Moses speak to the people, and they, they galvanize the people of God. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And now that he's galvanized the troops, so to speak, it's time to confront Pharaoh. But that's for the next time. I want to conclude in the balance of our time with three questions for you in your struggle, like Moses, to live by faith. Three questions, and they are simple out of the text. The first question is this, and I want you to look at your hands. Look at your hands. Everyone look at your hands. What's in your hand? It's probably a Bible. might be a pen. might be your notebook. God asked Noah this, remember? What's in your hand? It was the staff. He carries it with him, we're told in verse 20. Make sure he has that with him. It represents the power of God. Shepherds carried two things, a rod and a staff. Remember what the psalmist said? Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me, right? What are you carrying? Are you carrying a hammer or a saw or some other tool? Some of you are carrying pens because you're good writers. Some of you are carrying a brush or maybe some, some ball, like our, our son who introduced it here, who, uh, who, has, who meets with men weekly who don't know Jesus. is using basketball. Some of you are holding medicine. Like our own Chuck and Donna Larson now with our new church plan who have dedicated their lives to, to missions in their retirement. Some of you have the ability to do things and fix things and stuff like that. I met with a guy just the other day, who said to me, if if you could just point me to people who need things fixed in their homes, I said, we'll do it. We're going to do it tonight, by the way, even. Some of you, like Pam Buby, are great painters. You don't just paint because you love to paint, but you love to serve people with the paintbrush. Or Liz Worsham, Elizabeth Worsham, with her uh, getting all of these dental hygienists together and having Bible studies, seeing some of them come to Christ. And remember when, uh, uh, what's the commercial? It's uh, Samuel Jackson and, who was, and Jennifer Gardner, right? And they, they, they drilled that in with Capital One. They drilled that line in. It's, what's in your, what is in your wallet? What's in your hand? Is it money? A good friend of mine that I mentor in California was a ravingly successful businessman, made a ton of money, and then he got saved And then he got called into the ministry, and now he doesn't make tons of money. But he's been in that world. That is in his hand. He knows how they operate. And now he's a coach. He said, Pat, I don't coach rich people to get rich. I, I coach rich Christians to give their money to the kingdom of God. That's what he does, because that's in his hand. What is in your hand? 
Listen carefully to this line. It might be the only thing some of you need to hear. Every vocation is a divine vocation. Whatever you're doing, whatever is in your hand, you use it for the glory of God. There's a guy in our church whose wife just came to Christ a couple of weeks ago, and it was like her salvation just suddenly activated his faith. He owns a business, and now several men are meeting together who don't know Christ, and they're having evangelistic Bible studies. Why? Because it's in his hand to do it. That's why. What's in your hand? What's in your mouth? If we were to pull up those five excuses again, you'd see that four out of the five are directly related to the tongue, to the mouth, to the oratory. It was a big deal back in Moses' day to be able to wax eloquent. All the way up through the first century, the apostle Paul even said to the Corinthians, he, I, you know, I haven't charged you anything like others do, and he's referring to those who would come and give speeches and get paid for it. And yet, Moses says to God, I am not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. And yet, when you read in Acts chapter 7, 1,500 years later, Stephen in his speech says that Moses was mighty in word. So do we, do we have a contradiction here? Maybe not. How long has he been in the desert? 40 years. Who's he been talking to? He's a shepherd. He's talking to sheep. Not very responsive. Probably a little rusty, but my guess is, now listen to this, this is, my guess is that Moses was not, watch it, naturally eloquent. Like the Apostle Paul, highly trained, but not naturally eloquent. That's the way Paul even described himself. Remember what he said to the Corinthians, he said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I came to you with Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching were not with human wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and power. Watch it. So that your faith might not be in the wisdom of men, but in the what? The power of God. God knew that I had a mouth and I knew how to use it long before I got saved. I had friends that were urging me to go into politics. Could you imagine that all over the TV right now? Jeez. So what does he do? While I'm working at, and this just hit me like a ton of bricks this last week. While I'm working at Deer, he brings a guy by the name of Nick into my life. Two years earlier, Nick had been in a terrible motorcycle accident and had a terrible head injury. If I recall, he had a plate in his head. His speech was halting. It was, it was painfully slow. One of those guys just said, you wanted to help him with his words. But he had come to Christ a year or so earlier and was radically dedicated to the gospel and had been praying that God would bring somebody next to him that was interested in hearing truth. And it was him, it was Nick, who brought me to the very brink of salvation by which I was saved. I believe, why would God do that? That's the question. Why would God use a man who struggled just to talk to bring me to Jesus? I'm absolutely convinced that God was showing me at the very point of salvation that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. 
I think God was saying, Nimmers, I'm going to use your mouth, but you better not be trusting it. Power belongs to me. That's what I think he was saying. So it was with Moses. So it would be with the apostles when they stood before the religious leaders and in Acts chapter 4, and they recognized they were uneducated men. Have you ever read that? But they realized they'd been with Jesus. Good enough. What's in your mouth? Some of the most greatly used men and women in history were people that did not have eloquence, and they testify to that end. But the truth is, your struggle, your particular struggle to live the life of faith has almost nothing to do with your mouth and everything to do with your heart. And that's the last question I have for you this morning. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? For the very first time, Pharaoh's heart is referred to here. It, it, is there anybody in all of the Bible whose heart is mentioned more than Pharaoh's? I mean, incessantly we hear about his heart. Either God's hardening his heart or he's hardening his own heart. And it's maddening, isn't it? Who hardened? Did God harden it? Did he harden it? I think the answer is yes. As, as Pharaoh would vacillate as to whether or not he should let the people go, yes, I will, no, I won't, yes, I will, yes, I will, but no, I won't. And we'll see a lot of that, and it's very maddening. And I'm not a numerologist. I don't get into that. But num- in this case, this number is fascinating to me. Guess how many times Pharaoh's heart is referred to? The answer is 20 times. 20 Guess how many times the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Are you ready? Ten. Which means, the next question, how many times does Pharaoh in the narrative harden his own heart? Dead even. Dead even. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I just thought it was kind of an interesting number. I thought I'd throw it at you. (laughs) I think there's something here. I really do. I think we should pay attention to this. I think it means that while God will always have the final say, he places the responsibility of believing in your heart squarely on you and squarely on me. When when Paul says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and wait for God to change your heart to believe he raised Jesus from the dead, then you'll be saved. No, he commands everyone to repent and believe the gospel. That's what some of you still need to do. Now we know who makes it all happen. We know that those who come to Christ are chosen before the foundation of the world. But you need to know this. The one who opened the heart of Lydia in Acts chapter 16 to attend to the things that Paul was speaking, he'll open your hearts too. If you believe, he'll open your heart. And I don't pretend to understand this mystery. But if you believe in your heart that you are a separated 
man or woman or boy or girl, you are bound for hell apart from Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that he died for you and rose again for you, you will be saved. And speaking of this account, I think Jeremiah put it best when he said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Have you ever read that? As has often been said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And that's the problem with some of you. Your hearts are uncircumcised. They're hardened. They're calloused. They're darkened. They're alienated. They're sinful. But the good news is they can be changed. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. What's in your heart? The struggle to live by faith is real, but the just shall live by faith. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Seriously, have you done that? And experienced the new heart that God gives to those who do? The taking away of the stony heart, the placing within you, the tender heart, that loves God, rejoices in God, is grateful to God, the new creation from God. It's all there in the gospel if you believe from your heart. What's in your hand? What's in your mouth? What's in your heart? Let's pray.